Welcome back to, yeah, I got an epping job with a liberal arts degree. Uh, today I'm interviewing uh, Dr. Andrew Lopenzina, otherwise known as Drew, who's professor of early American Native American literature at Old Dominion University and has uh, multiple publications to include to an Indian's Looking Glass, cultural biography of the 19th century Pequot activist, minister, and author William Apis, and with, about whom he also does a lot of public um, history work and memorialization, and you're going to talk about that some, Drew. Um, his works appeared in uh, American Literature, American Quarterly, Native American Indigenous Studies. His first book was Ready, Native Americans Picking Up the Pen in the Colonial Period, which I did read and really enjoyed, and I keep meaning to, to turn to Apis and read that as well. Um, I'm really excited to have Drew here today because he's an old colleague and, and, and a good friend. Uh, we worked together at Sam Houston State University. I think we met during orientation, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. We, bond, we bond over Cormac McCarthy and alternative country music. It was, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a good Texas bonding. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, I remember when Gene Young uh, swore at me when I met him because I didn't play an instrument. <laughs> we were at that little bar downtown that was so cool until it shut down but anyways welcome to the show drew and i'd like it if you could just uh you know whatever i left out um just talk a little bit about what you do as a, as a faculty and a, as a scholar yeah sure i mean that that's a you know you you went over the, the sort of books that i wrote and they're indicative of the fact that i teach early american literature is kind of my wheelhouse but I, my scholarship is really focused on Native American literature, which I also teach. And, and so there's this interesting intersection between early American and Native American literature. Most people don't really think about Native people producing literature in this period that we refer to as early American, right? And so um, I've really been focusing on this fascinating uh, and, and, and just kind of forgotten history of how Native people have been writing and producing literature and, and writing in, in European forms of writing since the earliest times of colonization. Um, and and, and that there, there's been a great amount of literature that's been produced and it hasn't really been understood. And so that's what I have made my focus as a scholar. Yeah, I feel like you've recovered some really important early Native American history and culture language that... I feel like it's serving um, society. I mean, serving as well, right? The, the, the rediscovery or recovering, right? I think is the right word. Yeah, it, it's recovery work for sure. I mean, you know, it's all kind of stuff that's sitting there in the archive, but we have a particular way that we want to look at things um, when we tell our own national stories. And, and sometimes we really need to go back and say, like, you know, this was just sitting here all along and, and we didn't give it the, the, the respect that it was due because that's not where our focus was. And and really, our focus is never on Native people, um, right. except for in really reductive or, or negative or self-serving ways. And so um, trying to repair that history, recover that history, that's that's part of the project. Yeah, you do that really well. It's a nice um, one thing I like about being at Cal Poly Humboldt is uh, the strong Native American Studies Department and the work they're doing, and then the departments that uh, intersect with them. And I, I've looked at your program and, and been actually really envious of of yeah, sure. all the offerings that you have going on there yeah. right now. Um, I wish we had the resources and the personnel to do things like that, right? But it's it's kind of speaks to how we're underserved that way. Um, mm -hmm. We know there's just not a lot of institutional interest in general. And so I'm kind of, 
I don't know, a little bit of a lone wolf in this field in my institution, um, even though where I am, Old Dominion University sits at what I like to refer to as, as settler colonial ground zero. We are at right, uh, right. colonialism started right there in Norfolk. We have what we call first landing beach uh, right down the road from us. And, and I could tell you about like, you know, the sign, the historical marker that sits there and tells the story from such a, an insulting and, and, and culturally, you know, uh, 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 self-interested way to so you know changing that language is, is kind of a big part of what i'm trying to do too yeah you know that's really important you made several important points uh but uh i still pull over and look at historical markers to see you know how much race is colonizing and bad history is embedded in those markers um you know, I, I do want to make a, a small brag point here because we talk about the relevance of administrators a lot, right? <laughs> and um, we do have a, you, you looked at, I noticed you commented on our offerings that day. I um, I worked really hard in my role as a dean to make sure that, um, that you know, first credit goes to Native American Studies faculty, absolutely. But in the dean's role, which is significant, um, I lobby hard for us to make uh, Native American studies intro required for all students coming through. And we're doing it as part of our place-based learning community. So right now it's maybe like 90% of first year students, but I, I have a feeling there are very few institutions who can make the claim that almost every single one of their students is going to do at least one Native American history class. So, yeah, I, I've seen that popping up um, in, in, like you say, just very few institutions. There are a couple that are doing it now. Um, for you know, at that undergraduate level, so cool, so important. Um, yeah. I, I just love to see that catch on. Yeah, so thank you well, for doing it. Really. Oh sure, thank you. Yeah, lots of lots of good work that needs to get done, right? Um, also, one thing I think one reason you and I connected, I think, is also we both traveled very circuitous routes into our lives as academics, right? Um, and so. I remember, you know, of course, you're an awesome musician. Uh, and, and at the end, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your album that you're working on and also this folk music book. I don't know how you find time, but I think you managed a radio station at one time and, and you were, um, you know, yeah, I, you know, uh, we're look, watching the kids while, you know, Barb was either going to school, was a physician's assistant. But, I mean, talk about that a little bit because I think it's important that people know there's a lot of paths towards, you know, higher education and becoming a professor. Yeah. So first of all, I, I think you're right. It's one of the things that we first recognized with each other. You know, when you're, when you're in this academic space, you are surrounded by people mostly who have been on a certain track all their life. Right. And, right. and it's almost like, you know, we can spot each other out when, yeah. <laughs> when there's a couple of people who have come had, had oh, you've done it too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, I, I like to tell this to students. It, you, and I, I heard you saying this on your last podcast, as a matter of fact. Um, you were talking about how, you know, it's really how you have, you feel a certain resistance to trying to have students to say, like, this is what I'm going to be. This is my track, you know, at, 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 when they come into college and declare their major and stuff like that, because because you don't really know what you want to do right there. And you were talking about how people cast aside their dreams and stuff because they, they feel like they have to, like, just pick a track and run with it. And so, like, right. you know, I guess I'm not going to write the great American novel or become president right. of the United States. Well, I'm just one of those idiots who went the other way, right? It's like, well, right. no, I, I am going to be a writer and, and I am going to, like, follow all these um, – pursuits romantic or otherwise 
And, and so I like to tell my students that you get to live many lives. I think everybody thinks that you're, you're locked in. Like, I'm going to pick this path and I'm pretty much going to have to stick with it. And there, there's a lot, you know, it's anxiety producing and everything else. But, but I like to say, you know, you're, you're never really locked in. So I didn't even decide if I even made that decision consciously, I did not decide to become a scholar until I was in my mid thirties, I think, uh, when I went back to school to finish my undergrad and then thought like, I think I can do this. I can make this run. And, and so, as you suggest, I had lived kind of many lives prior to even getting into my academic life or even finishing college for that matter. Um, I, I drove a truck. I, I was the, uh, program director of a radio station in New York, a big band station, as a matter of fact. And I used to do their morning show. Like, you know, I came in just as a, a peon worker. Uh, you know, they put me, I did the night shift and, and, and all that sort of stuff. But then, you know, ultimately people realized, you know, he's kind of articulate and smart and, and you just kind of like, they're like, let's put you on the morning show and see what happens. And then the next thing I know, I'm, I'm like talking to all of Westchester, New York. You used to read a shock jock basically like, Hey, this is I was, I was the furthest the thing from a shock jock. I, can <laughs> I tell know. You that. I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, we, we used to talk about, you know, it's like, it was, it was, we, we played music, but then it was a call in show. And, and, you know, it turns out what people, when they call in, they want to talk about like, nobody came to pick up the trash this morning or, or stuff like that, you know, <laughs> problems and stuff. And I was just, you know, and I would like, I, I was just this reasonable voice that, that would talk to the, the local cranks. And, you know, they all sounded so like angry about everything when they would call on air. And, and but uh, but then they'd come and bring me cookies and stuff. And like, like okay. they really liked right. me. So, you know, I don't yeah. know. I, 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 I did well in, in all of these different kinds of things I did. I, I was like I laid when, when back when we, they were just starting to um, uh, bring cable to all the suburban neighborhoods in, in New England, like I was one of those guys who was out there digging those little trenches so they could lay the cable down through those neighborhoods, the underground cable. I've done a lot of different things. And, and uh, I've had a, a, you know, I did those things because I was creating room to try to be a musician and a writer, right. pursue right. the arts in ways that were important to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Boy, at some point, you and I should have a worse job off, right? Like, <laughs> you both had such crappy jobs. I worked at a, a camp for adjudicated sexual offenders and, you oh know, my God. a trucker. I, uh, I've done that, too. And and, and <laughs> such emotionally draining work. I mean, you know, you're, you're helping people and everything. And so maybe that's why we gravitated towards it. But not easy. No, it's tough. I didn't last very long, but also there was stuff going on. I thought it was good to get out of there. Um, but you made a really great point about, you know, living many lives. And, you know, I've been reading uh, Martha Nussbaum. I'm trying to elevate oh, my yeah. name when it comes to these conversations. Um, <laughs> her book, Not for Profit, Why Democracy Needs Humanities. And uh, one of her main arguments is the, the orientation towards um, STEM and engineering for applied applied sciences engineering to generate profit, to increase gross national product. Um, and I, I guess wandering towards my point here, um, liberal arts, you know, they won't, that won't allow you that many lives option, I don't think, uh, but, but liberal arts does, right? I mean, now you did a lot of this before you finished college, right? But I think one of the arguments you can make is if you have a broad liberal arts degree in training that you could go out and try different things. It, yeah, the, the liberal arts are, you know, it's surprising. And I think Nussbaum maybe talks about this. Um, you know, the liberal arts were, were the, the arts 
that allowed you to be free. Um, that's that's what they yeah, originally yeah, exactly. were. And so we think of the liberal arts as, as maybe English and history, you know, literature, all those things that enrich our lives. But but really, it was it, they were the arts that allowed you to be a, a free person because they gave you the skills to support yourself and the critical um, uh, acuity to be able to reason and 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 do all those things that that allow you to be functioning in, in a democracy. And so. Yeah. And so there's a, there's really a broader, the liberal arts are, are, is a broader thing than we normally think. And, and like, you know, STEM actually fits into the liberal arts. It, it's Absolutely. not, it's not, yeah. right. it's not um, sitting outside of it. And so, but yeah. And so um, maybe I, I guess what you were saying is I, I acquired whatever liberal, I, some of it is out, the liberal arts doesn't have to necessarily be acquired in the institution. Right. Um, right. Right. We're, we're learning all these things outside of the institution as well. But but like a lot of people who end up in the institution like you and I, we had a we had this craving for it regardless. We didn't we you know, the institution wasn't necessarily the vehicle to get there for us. For us it was like we were getting there all along and then the institution sort of created a, a place for us to land, I think. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean again, multiple thoughts in response. Uh it, as long as you don't go to administration, you have a career where you can spend your life in inquiry and knowledge and production of knowledge and sharing that knowledge and that passion. That's a that's a great privilege, right? Um, and I still get to do that some as well. It's just tougher once you make the jump to administration. But I think Nussbaum also makes the point that liberal arts allow us to see, she uses the word soul, and she doesn't say necessarily religious, but everyone in their complexity. And that also helps set them free. It helps us create a democracy as opposed to unidimensional representations of the other that has become increasingly popular in political rhetoric, um, predominantly on the right. I mean, right. So um, I, I th- there's a lot of value, right, in the liberal arts. But I, I want to um, make sure we get through some of these questions. Um, maybe... Um, Talk about the work you do in some more depth. Maybe you focus where you want to, like William Apis. You're doing such amazing work there. Um, uh, and But a little more detail and depth about the scholarship you do, I think, would be great. I mean, if we could sell some books, right? That'd be <laughs> <Why> nice. <not? laughs> so, uh, yeah, let me talk about William Apis. I think that's that's really where my passion is right now. And, and so I wrote a a biography of William Apis back in 2017 or something like that when it came out. And so he was a um, Native American. He was a member of the Pequot tribe. I think you, you mentioned that earlier. And in the 1820s and 1830s, he started writing books. Um, and he, he's the first Native American to actually, in the United States at least, to publish these book-length uh, tracts, autobiographies, uh political treatises, you know, whatever you want to call them. They, they all had a certain, um, they, they, they uh, had an advocacy for, for Native rights that is embedded in all of these things, no matter what genre he kind of slips it into. But um, so it, it's, I think Apis is writing at a time when we don't even think Native people are writing. That's it. He, he's in, in the 1820s. Um, we were caught in a paradigm where, where we usually, we, we are, are, notion of native people is kind of pushed westward we think of plains indians riding horses and chasing buffalo and stuff like that but yeah. the people had been under colonial rule for about 200 years at this point and william apis grew up like in extreme poverty 
um, which was the norm for Native people. They've been economically marginalized. Uh, most Native parents had to um, send their kids to work for white families um, with indentures. And, and so their culture was fragmented in this way. Kids were separated from their families. People were separated from their cultures. Uh, fathers had to go out and find itinerant work. They, they you know, whaling ships, they'd be gone for years. Uh, that was like a, one of the few jobs that was open to them. And so William Apis grows up in extreme poverty, neglect. Um, he's, he's abused by the white families that own him. He ultimately runs away at the age of 15 and then he gets conscripted into the U.S. Army. The War of 1812 just happens to be going on. And he gets caught up in that whole thing. Um, and some of the fiercest fighting of the War of 1812 up on the Canadian-U.S. border at that time. Mm-hmm. And so all that to say that, that he, he led this really difficult, deprived, impoverished life. He suffered um, really incredible trauma during all of this combat trauma. He was abused. He was beaten um, as a child. He was neglected. So we call that not right. just PTSD, but moral injury now, right? Um, yeah, you could, you could just pile it all on, anything that you right. could think about what a person had to go through. He went through it and then somehow pulls himself together, educates himself, decides he's going to become a minister. He works his way through the church. It takes a long time because the, the, the Methodist ministry doesn't want anything to do with Native people. They want to right. convert them. They don't want them at the upper, upper hierarchies of their uh, denomination. But at any rate... He succeeds and he uses this pulpit as a pathway to speak truth to power, right? And he, he, he'll get up uh, in front of audiences at, at churches, meeting houses, um, anywhere where people meet. And he's a draw. He's the, uh, you know, people want to come see the Indian preacher. He's kind of a spectacle in that way. Okay. And so he'd fill houses and then he'd stand up there and say, like, you know, you guys keep bringing us Christianity, um, but look at what you've done and look at how you're not being Christian. And, and, and he'd sort of turn the tables on his audience. And it was this really persuasive, powerful rhetorical tool where he ultimately would say, you know, it seems to me, you know, that native people were, were pretty hospitable to white people when they came here. Right. Um, maybe the natives are more Christian than the whites. And, you know, this was, I should, red- I should flag it. This, people this- up, but it would also, uh, but it was also really effective. I just real quickly point out that this is episode's going to drop during Thanksgiving week. <laughs> so, <laughs> good, good. <laughs> this was not planned. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, he writes. He ends up writing these books and, and publishing them, and and he was really something of a sensation. Um, uh, he 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 was able to advocate for Native communities. I believe he conducted the first successful. Uh, action of civil disobedience when he joined with the Mashpee tribe and was able to sort of create a crisis um, that he engineered in many ways and and, and through his manipulation of the press and and political powers brought everything to a head. He went to jail for a month and and while he was in jail, he wrote this this incredible tract um, uh, in defense of the Mashpee people. And it, it, you know, very, very much like Martin Luther King when he went to jail in Birmingham. So I just see these interesting parallels to me, William Apis, um, he precedes people like Frederick Douglass, um, right. uh, uh, Thoreau, Thoreau other people who are about yeah. 20 years off. I feel like Apis is actually forging a rhetoric of resistance um it hasn't quite nobody else is doing this and I, and I believe he's he's pulling it together whatever threads are already in the ether or whatever he's making it into this 
uh, powerful, really new rhetoric of resistance that other people of color are going to pick up with on and run with later on down the road. Okay, I need to read your book, clearly. Um, you've, you've been good about reading my books. So, um, so you said uh, people of color, would, would his work have influenced someone like Thoreau, for example? And well, it's, it's the question. Like Thoreau, I mean, Thoreau's, um, the way that Thoreau talks about and, and represents Native people is surprisingly insulting if you read Thoreau's oh, works through and through. And, and he would never acknowledge that he uh, picked up his ideas from a Native person. You know, Thoreau's ideas on civil disobedience, are they're in the air, and he's pulling them from a lot of different sources. Um, but, you know, resistance to civil government, Thoreau's track, doesn't get published. Um, it, it's at least 15 or 16 years after William Apis does the whole Mashpee um, resistance uh, movement that he organizes. So I don't know, you know, Thoreau could have picked up on that. It's possible. I guess that'd be the heart. Um, I'm thinking of a scholar I know who works in um, women monastics in the 12th century. Um, and it's like real detective work. She has to track through different texts. And there's a lot of elision, like you talk about in your first book of the role of women in the church and the role they played in like, the sacraments and things like that. I wonder if there's a way, certainly you would have thought of all this, of course, so bear with me and be patient to find out where Apis was giving these talks and these sermons where he's being published to at least show some correlation, like Thoreau might've been in that area at that time or might've read oh. that paper or. Yeah, Thoreau, could, would, would, it, it was in the news. What Apis was doing okay. was, was, but the, the news was misrepresenting it. So if you, you know, there's no TV cameras or anything at that time. And so, um, you know, it's kind of like, uh, like the headlines during, this was a peaceful resistance through, through and through. And it was, it was very intentional in its peaceful, you know, Apis says like, we, I gave everybody instructions not to harm a single person, not to touch mm-hmm. anybody. So it's, you know, he, he's, he's very careful about how he's putting this resistance together um, because there's a lot of angry white people that get inflamed by what he's doing. And the presses at the time are, you know, the headlines are incendiary. They're like uh, uh, Indian uprising in Mashpee and, and trouble in the wigwam and, you know, all of these sort of insulting uh, headlines that, that not, not only just happened in the area, but these headlines would get reproduced. Right. Um, you know, they'd move through the, the chain of, of newspapers would, would, would take these stories. It was like the AP wire for the time. They, so it's, it's being covered all the way down in like places like Louisiana, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Boy. Okay. I, I definitely have to read your book. Let me, I, I want to, I do, we got some good questions at the end. I want to make sure we get to, yeah. but, um, why did you decide to do this type of scholarship? What attracted you to it? And kind of when did that happen for you? You know, like everybody, I think in grad school, um, you're fishing around. You don't really know where you're going to land at first. And I certainly didn't know as a master's student. By the time I got into the Ph.D. program, um, you know, we were t- you were talking about Cormac McCarthy earlier, and I was like, I'm just going to ride Cormac. It's like nobody nobody was really acknowledging Cormac McCarthy back when we were in grad school, um, unless yeah. you happen to be at Sam Houston, maybe. But um, right, 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 true. But right. nobody was acknowledging him him as like a, a, a like a an American like a genius, you know, at, at that right. level of writer. So at, at any rate, I thought maybe I'd go that route, but it, I happened to be in school uh, when 911 happened, and. You know, like everybody, I was, I, you know, it was an upsetting moment. 
um, a moment of great anxiety. But but I think I was also struck um, by the kind of rhetoric that was coming out of that moment that was really polarizing, right? So all of a sudden it was like us versus them. There, that there's this other that we must vilify. And at the time it was like, you know, anybody who is Islamic or Muslim. Um, but that could also get projected on other people as well. And, and I found that a really troubling um, dynamic that came out of this, um, a sort of uber patriotism on one hand, and then and then to have that uber patriotism, you had to other somebody else. And, and I saw the rhetoric that was going around at that time in circulation, really similar to some of the rhetoric I was seeing in early American literature that was being directed towards Native people at the time. Okay. And, and I started to really think about that dynamic and, and how how uh, effective it is in, in a sense. You know, it works. That's the problem with it, right? We see it happening today in, in so many ways. And I wanted to know, like, there's another side to this story. And, and it's when I started, I flipped over and said, what are, how are Native people responding to this? Right. Uh, I really wanted to know. And, and what I found out was that Native people are writing they're communicating, they're, they're, they're pushing back in certain ways, in, in ways, in, in the very narrow pathways that are allowed to them at this time, um, because, of course, the colonists control the press, right, and the production right. of the material. Right. Nevertheless, Native people are engaging so much more than anybody suspects, right? And so right. that's what I, I, once I started finding that out, I was like, there's a wealth of information here that, that really has not been properly examined, and right. I thought like it needed more scholarly attention. And I thought that was a way with my concerns about social justice and, and how could uh, how could I help tell the story? How could I do it in a way that that would you know allow me to be an ally to native communities? Like right. how would they want the story to be told? And so that's you know, that that's how I started to pull all of this together. Yeah. And um, and I think you've well, I think you've done that very well overall. But in particular, some of the work you did getting a new memorial, I think it is birth site. Is that correct? And, and William Apis's uh, birth site. Yeah. Right. So and let, me, let me just, I'll tell you how that works. So I, I wrote my book on William Apis. And one of the things that we always ask ourselves in native studies, you know, so our scholarship, it's like, we're, we're putting new information out there. We're generating knowledge. It's what we're supposed to do, but there's, Perhaps it's self-serving, right? We do this because it's our career, and, and, and that's what gets us to the next level in our career. And from a Native studies perspective, it, it's kind of like, you know, so you're a scholar, you're doing these things institutionally, but what are you giving back to that community? Right, um, right. So I will say this. It's like I felt really honored in a sense that people within the Native community really right. trusted me to tell this story. That didn't just happen overnight, but but it but it did happen. But – um. But I still like, like, what is the give back? What else can I give back? And, you know, when I first started researching William Apis, so I, I had no training in, in archival research or any of those things. So I just, my, my program was this. He wrote a book. I, I can tell from all his books, sort of, I have some idea where he's been. So he tells us himself, I was born in Colerain, Massachusetts, this tiny little town in Western Massachusetts um, in 1798. And so I'm like, all right. I'm going to which start you're, which you're from, of course. So there's some overlap there for you personally. Well, that was right? fortunate. I mean, I didn't know that when okay. I started, but it was, it was okay. yeah, that, that, that was really helpful that I, I, I had a home base right there. Mm-hmm. So I went to Coleraine, this tiny little town, and I started like digging into all of their files. I was at the town clerk's office. I went through all their documents. 
I spent about two weeks just combing through everything. And what I found out, it's really fascinating, this tiny little town of 2,000 people, they did an amazing job of curating their own history, right? So they had like, just like in their library, like a whole shelf of, of history books, some of them published, some just written by, you know, never published, but written by local people. And there was like 20 books there. Not one of them mentioned William Apis and every single one of them, native people were simply savages. They were the enemy. And so I come to realize that, you know, William Apis was born in Coleraine, not as a, a savage outside the town. They were members of the community in whatever marginalized way they were there. They were they were just members of the community. And and Apis goes on to become the most famous person to ever come out of Coleraine. And, and like, so here is like, you have this famous entity and there is absolutely no mention of him, not only in the archive, but in the contemporary stuff, you could go to their website. Now he's on their <laughs> website. Now I can tell you that, but he wasn't right, yeah. at the time. Right. right. And so I'm like this here, here's you, you have this famous native son and there's, there's just zero. It's like he never existed. So I went to the town. It took a little while. I gave a talk at their historical society. Then I got a couple of people to come with me to the town hall. I, I connected with the indigenous community in Coleraine as well. And basically, right, right. I went to the uh, selectmen's meeting and I said, look, I want to put up a uh, memorial saying William Apis was born here. And they said, great, you pay for it. You can put it up. We'll get. We'll create the space for you. And I was like, oh. and you sold a bunch of T-shirts. Didn't see that one come. Well, so I I, I started printing up T-shirts, said saying, right. what would William Apis do, right? And, right. I have. Mine. And it turns yeah. out, <laughs> yeah, you should be wearing yours right now. Quite. I funny. know. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a little tight. <laughs> <laughs> I got an extra extra large. If you. No, no, no. I I don't do that. I, I'm. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. So I started selling the T-shirts um, and like people in the indigenous community, people in the scholarly community, like it, it took me probably like a year maybe, but I, I got them. I raised the money to put up a really nice marker right in, yeah. on the library lawn. I remember. And, yeah. uh, and we had a ceremony and we invited all people from the uh, indigenous community. We invited indigenous scholars um, and other scholars who were connected with William Apis's work and and. It, I remember it was a rainy day in October. It was cold. It was raining. And over 100 people showed up. And, mm -hmm. and just, again, imagine how small this town is, right? And, and like, the buy-in was incredible. But so now that marker sits right there in the center of town, acknowledging that William Apis was born there and, and who he is and why he's important. Yeah, this is great. And, and what I could see, too, and not that you not that you focus on it. Right. Because I think in, in your allyship, you don't you don't make it about you, which is really crucial. But it seems to me like the indigenous community uh, really recognizes and appreciates the work you've been doing in this area. I, think I can see that with the different things that get posted. Yeah, and I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I think uh, we've we've developed a good relationship. Um, yeah. And you go back and give like regular talks, too, don't you? Sure. Um, okay. I, I've, I've been talking about APIS to anybody who will listen. Um, I actually just did a podcast an hour ago <laughs> for uh, a group of uh, religious, um, a, a religious um, hymnody uh, themed podcast. But but it turns out that William Apis was involved in, you know, hymns were one of the things that Native people mm -hmm. love to engage in as, as part of their expression or performance of Christianity. Anyways. So, so yeah, I'll talk to anybody about William Apis. That, that is my uh, mission is to spread the word. Yeah, I was going to actually ask you to name that podcast so people can listen to it if they want to. So please do that.
Um, we'll, we'll set up a link for it. So the, the one I just put up was a another podcast with the American Writers Museum in Chicago. Oh, that's um, I, what I, I saw. recently yeah. did one with them as well. Um, so yeah, you know, I'm I'm doing podcasts left and right. Okay, so American Writers Museum, Drew Lopenzina, and what's the other one? Uh, I think it's called Sacred Nine. Um, I, I, we'll we'll get a link up. I I, I can't tell you exactly what it's called right now oh well this day and age they can't figure it out they're kind of so well right (laughs) um so um i was at a conference for deans which you know is as titillating as it sounds i want you to know Um, i i was i was not going to say anything i'm just letting that one fly by yeah i made the same joke in council chairs yesterday i got a few laughs out of it um you know me i'll recycle the joke forever um And so I went to a session that was about marketing the liberal arts and uh, a college, comparable college, UC Davis was there. It was great. And then uh, the comparable college, University of Arizona was there. It was great. And and then there's one person in between those two people who was terrible. But um, he had to make the throwaway joke, throwaway joke about English majors. So one, I drives me crazy. Right. Um, Even as a historian, uh, but you know me. My first love's English. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's um, right. You you read so, more than anybody I know. I think you devour more novels. Um, I can't keep up with you, so. Well, actually, the, uh, our producer Abigail Smithson is is a devoted novel reader too. So we're passing books back and forth regularly. Um, nice. So, uh, two questions. One, why? Why is it English? It's always thrown out there, and administrators do it too. Just surprise as kind of the signifier of, of uh, superfluous liberal arts degrees. And then two, why, why English for you as a major and then a PhD? Okay, that's a lot. Um, I know, sorry. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I think because English as a discipline is dangerous. It, it does, in a sense, fill us with ideas that are subversive that challenge the status quo, um, that, that people in power, um, not, it's not that they find it worthless, but they, they see how it, it's, it works against them. And so it's, it's, you know, that impulse to denigrate is to, is to try to, uh, discredit the thing that, that perhaps threatens you most, I suppose. I mean, I, I, I know it, Maybe that sounds uh, maybe a little heavy-handed, or or I'm inflating the value of English departments, but but I do believe that that they are seen as as subversive. Particularly, I mean, you know, I I think there are certain proto-fascist movements happening in our country right now as we speak. I think we all know what they are, and and should they come in power, English departments are the first things that they're want to get going to want to get rid of or or to to transform in in radical ways. The, you know, the whole push against critical race theory and, and critical race theory, it, it comes out of law, actually, but but it's English departments. Where, you know, that's been their home, really, that that where people have been developing those rhetorical concepts and, and pushing them and, and, and enfolding them into the discipline. And it poses a real threat. I'm in Virginia. Our governor, when he became when he became governor, our latest one, Governor Yunkin, he yeah. he, he ran on this and it was. His very first executive proclamation was that critical race theory uh, 
is against the law. Uh, that, that language is in there. And so um, he can't necessarily enforce that. It's a proclamation and he doesn't. But but if he had if things had aligned his way in this most recent election, right. I'd be right. wondering in, in what ways right. he would begin to enforce it. So that's, that's the first half of your question. <laughs> Thanks. No. And I just real quickly, uh, I think you really nailed it. And I also note that um, that in academics, it's oftentimes English departments that'll be the spear tip and asking hard questions of administrators. Uh, and um, I was once asked by a provost, a provost that I loved, and that, you know, this was an incarnate word when I was associate dean and we were walking and she's like, why is it always your college that is upset asking issues? She came from a nursing background. Yeah. Um, and I said, because we're trained in critique and dissent and innovation, right? We're you know, I quoted Socrates and the gadfly, you know, but yeah. so it's what we do, right? And someone has to do it, right? It's essential. <laughs> it's essential. <laughs> okay, uh, so know. then why English um, for you, personally, professionally? So so why, why did I choose English? Is that? Yeah, yeah. Because cause I am a gadfly and, <laughs> and they're the only ones that would take me. Um, <laughs> I, I just, you know, I, I come from a background. I love to read, which is what every, you know, I remember when I was applying for graduate school and, and talking to a professor and he said, please don't begin your, your essay and your application with, I've always loved to read books because that's what everybody <laughs> said, right? Well, I'm sorry, but that, I love to read books. I mean, and, and I, I take my inspiration from it and I, I've, tr- I've, I've, I write books. I, I've tried to be a novelist myself. I know you have dabbled as well. I'm just going to let that cat out of the bag. I'm still da- I'm dabbling. I'm dabbling. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and, and that's a hard field to break into. If, if I had known how hard it was going to be to become a professor, if I'd known just and, and how much the odds were stacked against me, I would have just yeah. stuck with trying to be a novelist. That would have been we easier, should. quite frankly. Right. I didn't mm-hmm. know. But I poured so much energy into this. Now, all right, well, I guess I'm doing this. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, you know, for me, I think similar, maybe it's reflective of our circuitous paths, but I went to grad school in history, well, American studies initially, um, to have time to write fiction, well, you know, so I was like God's perfect fool, right? I had no idea what I was getting into, um, and, you know, and then I fell in love with being an academic. Um, but, you know, to your point about reading books, so the other day, I was having a particularly shitty day, just like... I'm tired of this. I'm tired of everyone. Wah, wah, wah. And I went home and, and I was not even thinking of you, Drew. I should have been. I looked at my, so I have a bookshelf that's like what I consider the best books, right? And it's sitting like, as you come in my office, you see those books there, right? So um, George Saunders is there. Erdrich is there. You just name it, right? You know, um, Zora Neale Hurston is there. And um, Cormac McCarthy, I'm guessing. Yeah, a little bit. Um, and uh, I grabbed uh, Love Medicine, yeah. which I haven't read since grad school. And I left work early. I went home. I started reading it. I was like, mother of God. No, I read Erdrich regularly. I, I read The Sentence recently. And right before that, I read The Night Watchman, right? But mother of God. I'm just like so much packed into here emotionally, you know, politically, the writing. And I want to read a short passage, right? Do it. Short passage. All right. Um, it's from early. That's when they've all gathered at the house. 
and people have started drinking and things are starting to spin out of control. It's after June has died. Um, yeah. I, know you, I remember watching you teach tracks. That was a wonderful experience. Mm. Yeah. Um, Northern lights, something in the cold, wet atmosphere brought them out. I grabbed Lipsha's arm. We floated into the field and sank down, crushing green wheat. We chewed the sweet grass tips and stared up and were lost. Everything seemed to be one piece. The air, our faces, all cool, moist and dark and the ghostly sky. Pale green licks of light pulsed and faded across it. Living lights, their fires lobbed over higher, higher than died out in blackness. And I could keep going, but it's just like, so for first I'm gobsmacked, because as you said, I, I dabble in writing. And it was like, okay, I'm never going to be that writer. Um, and second, so I think about this a lot, because we're in this mode where we're responding to, you know, STEM, 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 engineering, applied, do, 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 right? And I was like, why don't we, one, have some sympathy for the people that understand the degree to which reading love medicine is going to improve the quality of their lives, Right. Because for me, it was it actually brought me back. It made me feel better. It made me happy. But so I, I've got a couple paths on this, and um, one one's more negative. So I'm going to go down the positive path, which is to say, there's a lot of people due to the way we're promoting education today and the things we're cutting who aren't going to have the opportunity to read something as beautiful and powerful and moving as Love Medicine and every single other thing that Louise Erdrich writes. Right, so. Respond, please. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for dropping that in my life. So here's the thing. Yeah. First of all, great passage. Louise Erdrich, you asked me earlier, like, why I got into Native studies. And, and the other side of that is I loved the Native writers, it, like, like, who were writing uh, – before, like, like at that time, Louise Erdrich, James Welch. I know you've read Fool's Crow, right? Um, You're the one that turned me on to Fool's Crow. I've now taught it like 10 times. Thank yeah, you, One Drew. of my favorite books. Um, yeah. Uh, Sherman Alexi, uh, Joy mm-hmm. Harjo, who is just the poet laureate of the, the U.S., right? Um, right? You know, people who are just doing stunning, stunning things in prose. Um, Louise Erdrich is, is my, like, she's just my favorite writer. And, and like, I didn't come to her as an academic. I, I, I just... I remember the first time you mentioned tracks. I put it. I picked it up out of a bargain bin at a at a bookstore in a mall when I was like, I don't know, I was like nineteen years old or something. And I read it and I was like, "Wow, this book! It, it's poetry, and it's it's so crystal. Uh, you know, it, it's 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 tight. It's compact. The prose are are just they're not superfluous, but they they when they describe something, they get it." Um, you know, she's just a brilliant writer, and, and I think she still writes compelling books, but I don't, you know, not, I don't mean this as a critique, really, but I think writers lose their power sometimes as they get older. I mean, mm-hmm. those early books are just like, like you said, gobsmacked. Um, and so, yeah. brilliant writing, and why shouldn't everybody be exposed to that? I think it's just, it's so criminal that, that like, we're, we're just cutting back. I don't know how many uh, English classes a, a student necessarily has to take. Um, you know, at your institution, I know at my institution, it's really just one, it's an intro to lit class. Um, even that, I'm not sure they have to take it. Uh, you know, it's a gen ed. Um, and, and, and a lot of those classes, uh, you know, that's going to be their only introduction. Exactly. Literature. And, 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 and sometimes the way those classes are taught, you know, that because they're trying to appeal to students now. So like, you know, you could take a, a section 
it's it's one twelve is the the number that we assign it here in in uh, ODU. But uh, you know, it might be on Harry Potter or something, or it might be on detective right. fiction. And I'm like, no, no, this is their only exposure. <laughs> you have to give them the whole palette. I mean, throw yeah. some Shakespeare in there. Throw like uh Coates. I mean, throw Louise Erdrich in the mix. Right. Give them some drama. Give them a little Sophocles, you know, like, but, but like give them the full palette because this is the only chance yeah. they get. And, and like right. to close it off to like one genre of fiction because that's what that teacher likes to teach. I'm just like, ah, oh, well, it makes me, it makes me want to like tear my hair out. I fight about these things and, and, and lose, I should say. Yeah, well, get used to losing, right? That's my life. Um, I um, well, okay, that's not, uh, a couple thoughts there. You know, one is like when I teach history, I don't use a textbook because they read textbook and they think, oh, I'm reading history. And it's like, no, no, God, no. This is what history is like—a good history book, right? Um, to try to give them a taste that in the future they'll keep seeking out and reading good history, and whatever it is, you have to assign in literature to make them to keep keep saying, I want to keep finding and reading books. But the other thing too, like um, let's go ahead and pick on Harry Potter and JK Rowling, JK Rowling. She's transphobic. So what the hell, right. Um, uh, Is, you know, this, this penchant for figuring out what students want in an administration, this happens a lot. Well, students aren't picking this students aren't. I was like, yeah, but my children, when they were young, wouldn't eat broccoli on their own if they had a choice. Right. And so let's, let's, and that sounds flip, but let me let me make a, a sidebar example, which is service learning. When I say, hey, in this class, you're going to go work at the farm for eight hours this semester. I don't get cheers and exultation. I get what? Yeah. No. And then once we and I actually anger in some cases and by and large, not always by and large, we come out the other side with a lot of positivity about that experience and why it was important. So the same thing with teaching important, great writers. They're going to improve the quality of their lives, right? And that's so much what the liberal arts is about, is meaningful lives. In English, maybe not. I don't want to like rank English over everybody, but in terms of Nussbaum's argument about seeing the other in their complexity, seeing their soul, or I'm thinking of, of Bronson Alcott's quote, which I stole from Nussbaum, um, education is that process by which thought is opened out of the soul and associated with outward things is reflected back onto itself and thus made conscious of its reality and shape. I think English is one of the very best at that. Yeah, ideally, right? And and so we're also, um, we can be complicit in stabbing ourselves in the back and, and pulling away from the things that um, we're talking about right here. So, I mean, you know that for me, it's, it's important to teach in a way that, that presents those perspectives that you're talking about from the from Nussbaum, you know, the, the other, the, you know, not just the great books, right? But but the books that we wouldn't even consider, right? right? Like, you know, nobody was calling William Apis's book great at any point, at any time, but, but I, you know, they're in my syllabus. So it's like, we're, we're trying to create this, this tapestry of, of culture that allows students to have some kind of, uh, to step into things, point of views, perspectives, everything else that they wouldn't otherwise be exposed to. But, you know, what we're talking about right now, like the appreciation of literature, just like loving a book so much that, that because the prose 
were so wonderful and because it, it spoke to something that you needed. Um, and, and like, like, like in that moment when you picked up love, oh, yeah. you needed that, <laughs> like you were yeah. in a dark place. This, this yeah. did something great for you. And, and, and so we've really gotten away from just appreciating literature, even in literature departments, I think, or English departments. It's, it's not part of our assignment to, uh, to love uh, quote unquote great books. And, and I think it's a mistake. I think I try to create a moment in every semester and not just a moment. It's like, let, let's learn about all these cultural things. Let's learn about, you know, my classes are very, they run parallel. They're, it, they're, they're history classes uh, encased in, in literary, um, yeah. you know, coverings or bindings. But so we're learning this awful history and it is an awful history, but at certain points you just have to say, see this piece of writing here like like just how wonderful that is um and 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 to feel it right there's moments where you just have to stop and feel like like a great passage by emerson or something or uh you know whoever louise erdrich whoever it is and and we don't do that enough i think and i think it's a type of mindfulness as well right is being able to spend some time with those words uh what's being conveyed the construction of a sentence and um and appreciate it for that. And I want to go a little further back to what you were saying about taking the time to appreciate it. Well, you said it again at the end there, sorry. Um, and I remember there's a great Aldo Leopold quote that I came across when I was researching on all these dams that were being built in 30s and 40s. Um, and I don't know why I'm saying um so much. I didn't sleep well last night, so apologies to my thousands of listeners. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, uh, and he's, he was making the, he said, you know, don't argue the engineer's argument. And by engineers, apologies to the engineer colleagues at Cal Poly Humboldt and Oswego. He met like Bureau of Reclamation, Corps of Engineers, right? Yeah. People that were making instrumental arguments about the uses of nature. And he said, you don't fall into that trap, the instrumentalist trap. I'm paraphrasing hugely here. But argue for the beauty of nature, the aesthetics of the, you know, the created world, etc. And I... I think part of what we have to do is to reject the instrumentalist argument about enrollment and majors and what's the job going to be and say, no, no, no. What we do is, in fact, superior. Right. What we do is so critically important to democracy, to a meaningful life, to yeah, trying to turn a day around when it's going really south. Right. Um, but really to go back to Nussbaum and, and many others to to try to understand the, the beauty, complexity of the world, other people's experiences and, and, and be a better person for it. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Which is why, you know, I, I would lobby hard to have you come and be Dean over at our institution. Any, any they are hiring, but uh, they're hiring like a, what a vice provost of something other. I, was I don't know. You know, there. so I, I, you know, at some point I, I think, we're probably running out of time here, right? And so we're not going to have uh, probably a lot of time to critique the entire institution. Um, but well, let's, let's yeah, wrap we're up. probably hiring a vice provost or a, a vice yeah. vice provost or an assistant to the vice provost or, or some such <laughs> thing. Yeah. So so come on over, take that job, and see where you can. There's who there are those who call that administrative bloat, right? Um, yeah, I've heard that term. <laughs> I joked. I brought up the council chairs uh, yesterday, and I was like. 
I don't know if y'all are just nice, but I haven't heard you all use it. And one of the faculty's like, well, we think it. <laughs> Thanks for making that transparent, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, fortunately, here, we uh, for 6,000 students, we have three academic deans. Each have one associate dean, so we don't have an administrative bloat problem at the college level. Um, That's why you can but, afford to have an indigenous studies program. Maybe. Yeah, I think so. Maybe that might be part of it. But... Kind of let's get to this a little bit. And I, I feel like we're going to bring you back for another show. And it's like a <laughs> good, show good. that's just about like academics and administration. We're, 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 so I'm just going to say that like, the president yeah. of my institution, his mentor is the president of West Virginia University. In fact, he oh, God. brought him here to our institution to introduce him to us at his uh, coming out party when he became president. Anyways. I won't go into detail about that, but but you, it, it'll give you a sense of the philosophy of our current administration. Right. So you're you're facing the same sort of pressures, like you know, make the argument for why your program should exist, cutting of budgets. I mean, to the degree you're comfortable talking about your own institution, I mean, you are tenured, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, was that an invitation to talk more about my own institution? Is that? It's up to you. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious on my end. So, yeah, no, I, I understand that. Um, but I, I have a lot of philosophical differences with what's happening in our institution right now. And it's discouraging. I mean, you said, you know, we're, we're forced to defend what we do. Um, it's not just that we're, we're forced to defend it on, on every sort of minuscule level. And, you know, you, you were talking earlier about how I get to do research and read books and everything. It's like, I am so swamped with service work and administrative. And I know it's just the, yeah. the natural complaint, but you know how productive I am as a scholar. I've done a lot. As a matter right. of fact, I, I can just like, I, I've, I've published and produced more than um, most anybody around me that, that I can point to has been in yeah. the field as long as I have. And so, but so when I say that, like, I can't find time to do my own scholarship um, because I'm so swamped with like, defending what I do or, or analyzing what I do or, or, um, you know, assessing what I do. Uh, I, it's yeah, just insane, insane. And, and it's, yeah. it's completely overwhelmed me. And I know it's not just me. So when you were talking about a dark moment, you know, it's like, yeah, I've been feeling weighted down. I know it's November. So we're all, you know, that's just that part of the semester where, um, it, we're all slogging through it really at this point. You, you have so much right. energy starting up, but yeah, I, I, I need that moment where it's like not just to pick a book off the shelf and read it, but, but to feel like, like that's actually part of our mission is to just let people feel that, that beauty and that presence and that, that intentionality. Cause you know, what makes Louise Erdrich great isn't, isn't that she writes pretty, but she does, but it's that, she's writing for a cause and a reason and and it's 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 important to get that word out and and we need to be filled with those those types of i don't know messages yeah i like that i think we could be more missionary in the work and that's what we're trying to do with our marketing is to make the case for why um all of this work is important we are running out of time, so I what I'm going to do is commit to bringing you back as a guest a second time, yeah. and really let's dig into stuff about administration, academics, the the role of neoliberalism and destroying liberalism, and what that means for us as a democracy, or just you know 
everything else. Uh, but real quick, you've got a new project, uh, a book on uh, folk music. Will you say just a little bit about that? Sure. Okay, yeah. Um, who knows? You might get someone in from this who's like, I want to contribute. Yeah. <laughs> who knows? Um, I, I've got two projects coming up. First, I have a, a scholarly edition of William Apis's A Son of the Forest, which is coming out with Broadview Press. And so that's um, oh, great. still in the works, but that will be coming out. And I think that's going to be a great um, a great t- uh, tool or, or whatever for people who want to teach Apis and, and need to find a way to present them in the classroom. But um but yeah, I was approached, and, and so this is interesting because it, it's a strange connection back to Sam Houston. It's a mad, mad, oh boy, I'm so bad at this. They're going to be upset with me if I can't. Um, mad, mad something press. It's not mad dog. It's mad something else. Madville, Madville press. I'm sorry. So they're based in Sam Houston. Uh, Kim Davis, the who, who runs runs it, was a oh, student. And, and so she yeah. knows all the people we know. But that's not how I came to it. I have a colleague, uh, Bob Kunzinger who has uh, published a number of books with this press. And we became friends on Facebook. And then like somehow uh, like Kim Davis, who runs the press, saw like he knew me and like she knew me from reputation from Sam Houston. She, and so anyways, it came out that I was a musician. And, and so she was like, she pitched it to us. Um, so I play, I, I play guitar and, and I'm in a, uh, I have a folk duo we call Wine Dark Sea. Um, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, we're, 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 we're sort of, Hinting back to the the very first uh, balladeers, the Homeric bards, and and oh, I got the folk tradition that we're carrying forward, sort of. <laughs> yeah, I, I teach Iliad. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you know, you know. I mean, I know you know the reference, right? But um, so at any rate, we we, we do a, a lot of original music. Um, but but the the book is going to be a collection of essays by people who who have been involved in folk music in various different ways, you know, whatever it is. So um, I have approached Gene Young about this. He's our old guy who plays the fiddle, uh, got mad at you for not playing an instrument. (laughs) He said, fuck Um, you, right? I just met him. (laughs) Mary and Elle, right? And so they they really know so much about the the tradition of Appalachian folk music. Right. and, and I have, I know folk, well, I don't know them. I, there, there's certain folk performers in my midst who, who've been on the circuit. I've approached them, but we're also, it's an open call for anybody who wants to um, write an essay about their connection to American folk music, whatever that connection might be. Um, and so, yeah, so that's out there now. We'll be taking papers. I, I'm excited about it, right? This is, this is a, another side of, this is a passion of mine that, I don't normally get to pursue. And so I've written my essay um, (laughs) and and it was a joy to write it. Right. It was a joy to write something that wasn't um, connected to the academic side of myself. Let me say one last thing. It's like, you know, when I write and and you'll see it when you read my APIS book before we get together again, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) Thank you. You know, I I write I'm not going to compare myself to Louise Erdrich, but I try to write with. with with a, a not a poet's eye, but but with understanding, like there there's a there's there's a need to be eloquent. Like you you yes. need to to speak in a way that that lifts people up a little bit. And you know we yeah. all know how dry academic writing can be. Oh, I, I guarantee you, this book will not be dry. Um, it, it's good. it's a it's a good read. I think it, it, it's, it, you know, I, I, I poured a lot into it. And so anyways, um, you know, I try to access that part of myself as a writer. I know you do too. And that's important. Yeah. I, I, I 
in particularly the Elwha book, I tried to write like that as much as possible. I, you know, we want the, well, in the history, there used to be a literary tradition in history. And um, I think if we can create a little joy while people are reading our work, that that's nice. Yeah. You know, Drew, this has been an absolute delight. We're going to have you back. I'm going to read the Apis book. Uh, and um, just thank you so much for spending time uh, with me today. I yeah, it's been a pleasure. Really. So great to see you. All right. Take care. All right.